Sable Hall, he gathered his strength and rode to the wall to join the leal watchmen in putting them down. The rebels were former poor fellows and warriors' sons who had accepted clemency from the boy king, led by Sir Oliver Bracken and Sir Raymond Mallory, the two turncloaked knights who had served in Magor's king's guard before abandoning him for Jeheris. The Lord Commander of the Watch, unwisely, had given Bracken and Mallory command of two crumbling forts, with orders to restore them. Instead, the two men decided to make the castles their own seats and establish themselves as lords. Their uprising proved short-lived. For every man of the Night's Watch who joined their rebellion, ten remained true to their vows. Once joined by Lord Stark and his bannermen, the Black Brothers retook Rhymegate and hanged the Oathbreakers, save for Sir Oliver himself, who was beheaded by Lord Stark with his celebrated blade, Ice. When word reached Sable Hall, the rebels there fled beyond the wall in hopes of making common cause with the wildlings. Lord Walton pursued them, but two days north in the snows of the haunted forest, he and his men were set upon by giants. It was written afterward that Walton Stark slew two of them before he was dragged from his saddle and torn apart. His surviving men carried him back to Castle Black in pieces. As for Sir Raymond Mallory and the other deserters, the wildlings gave them a cold welcome. Rebels or no, the free folk had no use for crows. Sir Raymond's head was delivered to Eastwatch half a year later. When asked what had befallen the rest of his men, the wildling chieftain laughed and said, We ate them. Brandon Stark's second son, Alaric, became the lord of Winterfell. He would rule the north for twenty-three years, an able man, though a stern one. But for a long while he had no good to say of King Jaehaerys, for he blamed the king's clemency for his brother Walton's death, and was oft heard to say that his grace should have beheaded Magor's men rather than sending them to the wall. Far removed from the troubles in the north, King Jaehaerys and Queen Alisan remained in their self-imposed exile from the court, but they were anything but idle. Jaehaerys continued his rigorous training regimen with the knights of his king's guard every morn and devoted his evenings to poring over accounts of the reign of his grandsire Aegon the Conqueror, on which he wished to model his own rule. Dragonstone's three maesters assisted him in these inquiries, as did the queen. As the days passed, more and more visitors made their way to Dragonstone to talk with the king. Lord Massey of Stonedance was the first to appear, but Lord Staunton of Rook's Rest, Lord Darklin of Duskendale, and Lord Bar Emmon of Sharp Point came hard on his heels, followed by the Lords Hart, Rollingford, Mouton, and Stokeworth. Young Lord Rosby, whose father had taken his own life when King Magor fell, turned up as well, sheepishly pleading for the young king's forgiveness which Jaehaerys was pleased to grant. Though Damon Valerian, as the crown's Lord Admiral and Master of Ships, was in King's Landing with the regents, that did not prevent Jaehaerys and Alisan from flying their dragons to Driftmark and touring his shipyards, escorted by his sons Corwin, Jorgen, and Victor. When word of these meetings reached Lord Rogar in King's Landing, he grew furious and went so far as to ask Lord Damon if the Valerian fleet could be used to prevent these Lord's Lickspittal from crawling to Dragonstone to carry favour with the boy king. Lord Valerian's reply was blunt. No, he said. The hand took this as a further sign of disrespect. Meanwhile, 
Queen Alessand's new ladies-in-waiting and companions had settled in on Dragonstone, and it soon became apparent that her mother's hope that these wise women might persuade the little queen that her marriage was unwise and impious had gone seriously awry. Neither prayer, sermons, nor readings from the seven-pointed star could shake Alessand Targaryen's conviction that the gods had meant her to marry her brother, Jaehaerys, to be his confidant and helpmate and the mother of his children. He will be a great king, she told Scepter Isabel, Lady Lucinda and the others, and I will be a great queen. So firm was she in her belief, and so gentle and kindly and loving in all else, that the Scepter and the other wise women found they could not condemn her, and with every passing day they clove more to her side. Lord Rogar's own plan to drive Jaehaerys and Alessand apart fared no better. The young king and his queen were to spend their lives together, and though they would famously quarrel and part later in life, only to reunite, Septon Oswick and Maester Culliper both tell us that never a cloud nor harsh word troubled their time together on Dragonstone before Jaehaerys reached his majority. Did Corianne Wilde fail to bed the king? Is it possible that she never made the attempt? Is the whole tale of the meeting at the inn mayhaps a fiction? Any of these are possible. The author of A Caution for Young Girls would have it otherwise, but here that infamous text becomes even more unreliable, splintering off into half a dozen contradictory versions of events, each more vulgar than the last. It would not do for the wanton at the heart of that tale to admit that Jaehaerys had rejected her, or that she never found the opportunity to lure him into a bedchamber. Instead, we are offered an assortment of lewd adventures, a veritable feast of filth. A wanton's tale insists that Lady Corianne not only bedded the king, but also all seven members of the king's guard. His grace supposedly gave her to Pate the woodcock after he had sated his own lusts. Pate passed her to Sir Joffrey in turn, and so it went. The high and the low omits these details, but tells us that Jaehaerys not only welcomed the girl into his bed, but also brought Queen Alisan in to frolic with them in episodes most often associated with the infamous pleasure houses of Lys. A somewhat more plausible tale is told in Sins of the Flesh, wherein Corianne Wilde does indeed lure King Jaehaerys into her bed, only to find him fumbling, uncertain, and over-hasty, as many boys of his age are known to be when first abed with a maid. By that time, however, Lady Corianne had grown to admire and respect Queen Alisan, as if she were my own little sister, and had developed warm feelings for Jaehaerys as well. Instead of attempting to undo the king's marriage, therefore, she took it upon herself to help make it a success, by educating his grace in the art of giving and receiving carnal pleasure, so that he might not prove incapable when the time came to bed his young wife. This tale could well be as fanciful as the others, but it has a certain sweetness to it that has led some scholars to allow that it might, mayhaps, have happened. Lewd fables are not history, however, and history has only one sure thing to tell us about Lady Corianne of House Wilde, the putative author of A Caution for Young Girls. On the fifteenth day of the sixth moon of fifty A.C., she departed Dragonstone under the cover of night in the company of Sir Howard Bullock, the younger son of the commander of the castle garrison. A married man, Sir Howard left his wife behind him, though he took most of her jewellery. 
A fishing boat carried him and Lady Corianne to Driftmark, where they took ship for the free city of Pentos. From there they made their way to the disputed lands, where Sir Howard signed on to a free company called, with a singular lack of inspiration, the Free Company. He would die in Mere three years later, not in battle, but in a fall from his horse after a night of drinking. Alone and penniless, Corianne Wilde moved on to the next of the trials, tribulations, and erotic adventures recounted in her book. We need hear no more of her. By the time word of Lady Corianne's flight with her purloined jewels and purloined husband reached the ears of Lord Rogar in the Red Keep, it had become obvious that his plan had failed, as had Queen Alyssa's. Piety and lust had both proved unable to break the bond between Jeheris Targaryen and his Alessand. Moreover, word of the king's marriage had begun to spread. Too many men had witnessed the confrontation at the castle gates, and the lords who had called at Dragonstone afterward had not failed to notice Alessand's presence at the king's side, or the obvious affection between them. Rogar Baratheon might talk of tearing out tongues, but he was helpless against the whispers that spread throughout the land, and even across the narrow sea where the magisters of Pentos and the swords of the Free Company were doubtless entertained by the tales Corianne Wilde had to tell. It is done, the Queen Regent told her counsellors when she realised the truth at last. It is done and cannot be undone. Seven save us. We must needs live with it, and we must use all our powers to protect them from what may come. She had lost two sons to Magor the Cruel, and a coldness lay between her and her oldest daughter. She could not bear the thought of being forever estranged from the two children who remained to her. Rogar Baratheon could not yield as gracefully, however, and his wife's words woke in him a fury. In front of Grand Maester Benefer, Septon Matthias, Lord Valerian, and the rest, he spoke to her contemptuously. You are weak, he declared, as weak as your first husband was, as weak as your son. Sentiments may be forgiven in a mother, but not in a regent, and never in a king. We were fools to crown Jeheris. He thinks only of himself, and he will be a worse king than his father was. Thank the gods that it is not too late. We must act now and put him aside. A hush fell over the chamber at those words. The Queen Regent stared at her lord husband in horror, and then, as if to prove that he had spoken truly, began to weep, her tears running silent down her cheeks. Only then did the other lords find their tongues. "'Have you taken leave of your senses?' asked Lord Valerian. Lord Corbray, commander of the city watch, shook his head and said, "'My men will never stand for it.' Grand Maester Benefer exchanged a glance with Prentice Tully, the Master of Laws. Lord Tully said, do you mean to claim the Iron Throne for yourself, then? This Lord Rogar denied vehemently. Never! Do you take me for a usurper? I want only what is best for the Seven Kingdoms. No harm need come to Jeheris. We can send him to Old Town, to the Citadel. He's a bookish boy. A maester's chain will suit him. Then who shall sit the Iron Throne? demanded Lord Keltigar. Princess Aria, Lord Rogar answered at once. There is a fire in her Jeheris does not have. She is young, but I can continue as her hand, shape her, guide her, teach her all she must know. She has the stronger claim. Her mother and father were King Aeneas's first and second born. Jeheris was fourth. His fist slammed against the table then, Benefer tells us. 
Her mother will support her, Queen Raina, and Raina has a dragon. Grand Maester Benefer recorded what followed. A silence fell, though the same words were on the lips of us all. Jeheris and Alisan have dragons too. Carl Corbray had fought in the battle beneath the god's eye, had witnessed the terrible sight of dragon fighting dragon. For the rest of us, the hand's words conjured visions of old Valyria before the doom, when Dragon Lord contended with Dragon Lord for supremacy. It was an awful vision. It was Queen Alyssa who broke the spell through her tears. I am the Queen Regent, she reminded them. Until my son shall come of age, all of you serve at my pleasure, including the hand of the king. When she turned to her lord husband, Benefer tells us that her eyes looked as hard and dark as obsidian. Your service no longer pleases me, Lord Rogar. Leave us and return to Storm's End, and we need never speak again of your treason. Rogar Baratheon looked at her incredulously. Woman, you think you can dismiss me? No, he laughed. No! That was when Lord Corbray rose to his feet and drew his sword, the Valyrian steel blade called Lady Forlorn that was the pride of his house. Yes, he said, and laid the blade upon the table, its point toward Lord Rogar. Then and only then did his lordship realize that he had gone too far, that he stood alone against every man in the room, or so Benefer tells us. His lordship said no further word. His face pale, he stood and removed the golden brooch that Queen Alyssa had given him as a token of his office, flung it at her contemptuously, and strode from the room. He took his leave of King's Landing that very night, crossing the Blackwater Rush with his brother Orin. There he lingered for six days, whilst his brother Ronald assembled their knights and men-at-arms for the march home. Legend tells us that Lord Rogar awaited their coming in the selfsame inn beside the ferry where he, or his brother Boris, had met with Corian Wilde. When the Baratheon brothers and their levies finally set out for Storm's End, they had barely half as many men as had marched with them two years before to topple Magor. The rest, it would seem, preferred the alleys and inns and temptations of the great city to the rainy woods, green hills, and moss-covered cottages of the Stormlands. I never lost so many men in battle as I did to the flesh-pots and alehouses of King's Landing, Lord Rogar would say bitterly. One of those lost was Arya Targaryen. On the night of Lord Rogar's dismissal, Sir Ronald Baratheon and a dozen of his men forced their way into her chambers in the Red Keep, intending to take her with them, only to find that Queen Alyssa had stolen a march on them. The girl was already gone, and her servants knew not where. It would be learned later that Lord Corbray had removed her at the Queen Regent's command. Dressed in the rags of a common girl of the lowest order, with her silver-gold hair dyed a muddy brown, Princess Aria would spend the rest of the Regency working in a stable near the King's Gate. She was eight years old and loved horses. Years later, she would say that this was the happiest time of her life. Sad to say, there was to be little happiness for Queen Alyssa in the years to come. Her dismissal of her husband as the hand of the king had destroyed any affection that Lord Rogar might ever have felt for her. From that day forth, their marriage was a ruined castle, 
an empty shell haunted by ghosts. Alyssa Valerian had survived the death of her husband and her two eldest sons, a daughter who perished in the cradle, years of terror under Magor the Cruel, and a rift with her remaining children, but she could not survive this, Septon Bath would write, when he looked back upon her life. It shattered her. Contemporary reports from Grand Maester Benefer agree. With Lord Rogar gone, Queen Alyssa named her brother Damon Valerian as Hand of the King, dispatched a raven to Dragonstone to tell her son Jaehaerys some, but not all, of what had occurred, and then retired to her chambers in Magor's Holdfast. For the remainder of her regency she left the rule of the Seven Kingdoms to Lord Damon, and took no further part in public life. It would be pleasant to report that Rogar Baratheon once back at Storm's End reflected on the error of his ways, repented his mistakes, and became a chastened man. Sadly, that was not his lordship's nature. He was a man who knew not how to yield. The taste of defeat was like bile in the back of his throat. In war, he would boast, he would ne'er lay down his axe whilst life remained in his body, and this matter of the king's marriage had become a war to him, one he was determined to win. One last folly remained to him, and he did not shrink from it. Thus it was that in Old Town, at the mother house attached to the starry sept, Sir Orin Baratheon appeared suddenly with a dozen men-at-arms and a letter bearing Lord Rogar's seal, demanding that the novice Rayla Targaryen be turned over to them immediately. When questioned, Sir Orin would say only that Lord Rogar had urgent need of the girl at Storm's End. The ploy might well have worked. But Scepter Carolyn, who had the door of the mother house that day, had a spine of steel and a suspicious nature. Whilst placating Sir Orin with the pretext of sending for the girl, she sent instead to the High Septon. His High Holiness was, mayhaps fortunately for both the child and the realm, asleep, but his steward, a former knight who had been a captain in the warrior's sons until they were abolished, was awake and wary. In place of a frightened girl, the Baratheon men found themselves confronted by thirty armed septons under the command of the steward, Caspar Straw. When Sir Orin brandished the sword, Straw calmly informed him that two score of Lord Hightower's knights were on their way, a lie, as it happened, whereupon the Baratheons surrendered. Under questioning, Sir Orin confessed the entire plot. He was to deliver the girl to Storm's End, where Lord Rogar planned to force her to confess that she was the actual Princess Aria, not Rayla. Then he meant to name her Queen. The father of the faithful, a man as gentle as he was weak of will, heard Orin Baratheon's confession and forgave him. This did not prevent Lord Hightower, once informed, from throwing the captive Baratheons into a dungeon and dispatching a full account of the affair to both the Red Keep and Dragonstone. Donald Hightower, who had rightly been named Donald the Delayer for his reluctance to take the field against Septon Moon and his followers, seemed to have no fear of offending Storm's End by imprisoning Lord Rogar's own brother. Let him come and try to prize him free, he said when his maester worried about how the former hand might react. His own wife took his hand and cut his balls off, and soon enough the king will have his head. Across the width of Westeros, Rogar Baratheon fumed and raged when he learned of his brother's failure and imprisonment, but he did not call his banners, as many had feared. Instead, he fell into despair. 
I am done, he told his own maester glumly. It is the wall for me, if the gods are good. If not, the boy will have my head and make a gift of it to his mother. Having sired no children by either of his wives, he commanded his maester to draft a will and confession, wherein he absolved his brothers Boris, Garin, and Ronald of having played any role in his wrongdoing, begged for mercy for his youngest brother Orin, and named Sir Boris as heir to Storm's End. All I did, and all I tried to do, was for the good of the realm and the Iron Throne, he ended. His lordship would not have long to wait to know his fate. The regency was almost at an end. With the former hand and queen regent both wounded and silent, Lord Damon Valerian and the remaining members of the Queen's Council ruled the realm as best they could, saying little and doing less, in the words of Grand Maester Benefer. On the twentieth day of the ninth moon of 50 AC, Jeheris Targaryen reached his sixteenth name day and became a man grown. By the laws of the Seven Kingdoms, he was now old enough to rule in his own right, with no further need of a regent. All across the Seven Kingdoms, lords and small folk alike waited to see what kind of king he would be. A Time of Testing The Realm Remade King Jaehaerys I Targaryen returned to King's Landing alone, on the wings of his dragon Vermithor. Five knights of his King's Guard had come before him, arriving three days earlier, to ascertain that all was in readiness for the king's arrival. Queen Alisan did not accompany him. Given the uncertainty that surrounded their marriage and the fraught nature of the king's relationship with his mother, Queen Alyssa, and the lords of the council, it was thought prudent that she remain on Dragonstone for a time with her wise women and the rest of the king's guard. The day was not an auspicious one, Grand Maester Benefer tells us. The skies were grey, and a persistent drizzle had fallen half the morning. Benefer and the rest of the council awaited the king's coming in the inner yard of the Red Keep, cloaked and hooded against the rain. Elsewhere about the castle, knights and squires and stable boys and washerwomen and scores of other functionaries went about their daily chores, pausing from time to time to glance up at the sky. And when at last the sound of wings was heard and a guardsman on the eastern walls caught sight of Vermithor's bronze scales in the distance, there came a cheer that grew and grew and grew, rolling past the Red Keep's walls, down Aegon's high hill, across the city and well out into the countryside. Jaehaerys did not land at once. Thrice he swept over the city, each time lower than before, giving every man and boy and barefoot wench in King's Landing a chance to wave and shout and marvel. Only then did he bring Vermithor down in the yard before Magor's holdfast, where the lords were waiting. He had changed since last I saw him, Benefer records. The stripling who had flown to Dragonstone was gone, and in his place was a man grown. He was taller than before by several inches, and his chest and arms had filled out. His hair was flowing loose about his shoulders, and a fine golden down covered his cheeks and chin, where before he had been clean-shaved. Eschewing all kingly raiment, he wore salt-stained leathers, garb fit for hunting or riding, with only a studded jack to protect him. But on his sword-belt 
He bore Blackfire, his grandsire's sword, the Sword of Kings. Even sheathed, the blade could be mistaken for no other. A shiver of fear went through me when I saw that sword. Is there a warning there? I wondered, as the dragon settled to the ground, smoke rising from between his teeth. I had fled to Pentos when Magor died, frightened of what fate awaited me under his successors, and for an instant as I stood there in the damp I wondered whether I had been a fool to return. The young king, a boy no longer, soon dispelled his grandmaster's fear. As he slid gracefully from Vermifol's back, he smiled. It was as if the sun had broken through the clouds, reported Lord Tully. The lords bowed before him, several going to their knees. Across the city, bells began to ring in celebration. Jeheris pulled off his gloves and tucked them into his belt, then said, My lords, we have work to do. One luminary had not been present in the yard to greet the king. His mother, Queen Elisa. It fell to Jeheris to seek her out in Magor's holdfast, where she had secluded herself. What passed between mother and son when they came face to face for the first time since the confrontation on Dragonstone, no man can say. But we are told that the queen's face was red and puffy from weeping when she appeared a short time later on the king's arm. The dowager queen, a regent no more, was present for the welcoming feast that evening, and at numerous other court functions in the days beyond that. But no longer did she have a seat at council sessions. Her grace continued to do her duty by the realm and her son, Grand Maester Benefer wrote, but there was no joy in her. The young king began his realm by remaking the council, keeping some men and replacing others who had proved unequal to their tasks. He confirmed his mother's appointment of Lord Damon Valerian as Hand of the King, and retained Lord Corbray as the commander of the city watch. Lord Tully was thanked for his service, reunited with his wife Lady Lucinda, and sent home to Riverrun. To replace him as Master of Laws, Jeheris named Albin Massey, Lord of Stonedance, who had been amongst the first men to seek him out on Dragonstone. Massey had been forging a maester's chain at the Citadel only three years earlier, when a fever had carried off both his older brothers and his lord father. A twisted spine condemned him to walk with a limp, but as he said famously, I do not limp when I read, nor when I write. For Lord Admiral and Master of Ships, his grace turned to Manfred Redwine, Lord of the Arbor, who came to court with his young sons Robert, Rickard, and Ryan, squires all. It marked the first time the Admiralty had gone to any man, not of House Valerian. All King's Landing rejoiced when it was announced the J. Harris had also dismissed Edwell Keltigar as master of coin. The king spoke to him gently, it was said, and even praised the leal service of his daughters to Queen Alisan on Dragonstone, going so far as to name them two treasures. The daughters would remain with the queen thereafter, but Lord Keltigar himself left for Claw Isle at once, and with him went his taxes— every one of them struck down by royal decree three days into the young king's rule. Finding a suitable man to take Lord Edwell's place as master of coin proved to be no easy task. Several of his advisers urged King Jeheris to appoint Lyman Lannister, supposedly the richest lord in Westeros, but Jeheris was disinclined. 
Unless Lord Lyman can find a mountain of gold under the Red Keep, I do not know that he has the answer we require, his grace said. He looked longer at certain cousins and uncles of Donal Hightower, for the wealth of Old Town derived from trade rather than the ground, but the uncertain loyalties of Donald the Delayer when faced with Sept and Moon gave him pause. In the end, Jeheris made a far bolder choice, reaching across the narrow sea for his man. No lord, no knight, not even a magister, Rigo Draz was a merchant, trader, and money-changer who had risen from nothing to become the richest man in Pentos, only to find himself shunned by his fellow Pentoshi and denied a seat in the Council of Magisters because of his low birth. Sick of their scorn, Draz gladly answered the king's call, moving his family, friends, and vast fortune to Westeros. To grant him equal honor with the other members of the council, the young king named him a lord. As he was a lord without lands, sworn men or a castle, however, some wit about the castle dubbed him the Lord of Air. The Pendoshi was amused. If I could tax Air, I would be a lord indeed. Jeheris also sent off Septon Mateus, that fat and furious prelate who had fulminated so loudly against incestuous unions and the king's marriage. Mateus did not take his dismissal well. The faith will look askance at any king who thinks to rule without a septum by his side, he announced. Jeheris had a ready answer. We shall have no lack of septons. Septon Oswick and Septa Isabel will remain with us, and there is a young man coming from High Garden to see to our library. His name is Bath. Matthias was dismissive, declaring that Oswick was a doddering fool and Isabel a woman, whilst he had no knowledge of Septon Bath. Nor of many other things, the king replied. Lord Massey's famous remark that the king required three persons to replace Septon Matthias in order to balance the scales was likely uttered shortly after, assuming it was uttered at all. Matthias departed four days later for Old Town. Too corpulent to sit a horse, he travelled in a gilded wheelhouse attended by six guardsmen and a dozen servants. Legend tells us that whilst crossing the Mander at Bitterbridge, he passed Septon Bath coming in the other direction. Bath was alone, riding on a donkey. The young king's changes went well beyond the nobles who sat upon his council. He made a clean sweep of dozens of lesser offices as well, replacing the keeper of the keys, the chief steward of the Red Keep, and all his under-stewards, the harbour-master of King's Landing, and in time the harbour-masters of Old Town, Maidenpool, and Duskendale as well, the warden of the King's Mint, the King's Justice, the master-at-arms, kennel-master, master-of-horse, and even the castle rat-catchers. He further commanded that the dungeons beneath the Red Keep be cleaned and emptied out, and that all the prisoners found in the black cells be brought up into the sun, bathed, and allowed to make appeal. Some, he feared, might well be innocent men imprisoned by his uncle. In this, Jeheris proved sadly correct, though many of those captives had gone quite mad during their years in darkness and could not be released. Only when all this had been done to his satisfaction and his new men were in place did Jeheris instruct Grand Maester Benefer to dispatch a raven to Storm's End, summoning Lord Rogar Baratheon back to the city. The arrival of the king's letter set Lord Rogar and his brothers at odds. Sir Boris, oft considered the most volatile and belligerent of the Baratheons, proved the calmest in this instance. 
The boy will have your head if you do as he bids, he said. Go to the wall. The Night's Watch will take you. Garin and Rommel, the younger brothers, urged defiance instead. Storm's End was strong as any castle in the realm. If Jaehaerys meant to have his head, let him come and take it, they said. Lord Rogar only laughed at that. Strong, he said. Harrenhal was strong. No, I will see Jaehaerys first and explain myself. I can take the black then if I choose. He will not deny me that. The next morning he set off for King's Landing, accompanied only by six of his oldest knights, men who had known him since childhood. The king received him seated on the iron throne with his crown upon his head. The lords of his council were present, and Sir Geoffrey Doggart and Sir Lawrence Roxton of the King's Guard stood at the base of the throne in their white cloaks and enameled scales. Elsewise, the throne room was empty. Lord Rogar's footsteps echoed as he made the long walk from the doors to the throne, Grand Maester Benefer tells us. His lordship's pride was well known to the king, he wrote. His grace had no wish to wound him further by forcing him to humble himself before the entire court. Humble himself he did, however. The lord of Storm's End fell to one knee, bowed his head, and laid his sword at the base of the throne. Your grace, he began. I am here as you commanded. Do as you will with me. I ask only that you spare my brothers and House Baratheon. All that I did, I did. For the good of the realm as you saw it, Jaehaerys raised a hand to silence Lord Rogar before he could say further. I know what you did, and what you said, and what you planned. I believe you when you say you meant no harm to my person or to my queen. And you are not wrong. I would make a splendid maester, but I hope to make an even better king. Some men say that we are now enemies. I would sooner think of us as friends who disagreed. When my mother came to you seeking refuge, you took us in at great risk to yourself. You could have easily clapped us in chains and made a gift of us to my uncle. Instead, you swore your sword to me and called your banners. I have not forgotten. Words are wind. Jaehaerys went on. Your lordship, my dear friend, spoke of treason, but committed none. You wished to undo my marriage, but you could not do so. You suggested placing Princess Arya upon the iron throne in my place, but here I sit. You did send your brother to remove my niece Rayla from her mother house, true, but for what purpose? Perhaps you only wished to have her for a ward, lacking any child of your own. Treasonous actions deserve punishment. Foolish words are another matter. If you truly desire to go to the wall, I will not stop you. The Night's Watch needs men as strong as you. But I would sooner you remain here, in my service. I would not sit upon this throne if not for you. All the realm knows that. And I still have need of you. The realm has need of you. When the dragon died and my father donned the crown, he was beset on all sides by would-be kings and rebel lords. The same may befall me, and for the same reason, to test my resolve, my will, my strength. My mother believes that godly men throughout the realm will rise against me when my marriage is made known. Mayhaps so. To meet these tests, I need good men around me, warriors willing to fight for me, to die for me, and for my queen, if need be. Are you such a man? Lord Rogar, thunderstruck at the king's words, looked up and said, 
I am, your grace, in a voice thick with emotion. Then I pardon your offences, King Jeheris said. But there will be certain conditions, his voice grew stern as he listed them. You will never speak another word against me or my queen. From this day forth, you shall be her loudest champion and suffer no word to be spoken against her in your presence. Furthermore, I cannot and will not suffer my mother to be disrespected. She will return with you to Storm's End, where you will live as husband and wife once again. In word and deed you will show her only honour and courtesy. Can you abide by these conditions? Gladly, said Lord Rogar. Might I ask, what of Orin? That gave the king pause. I shall command Lord Hightower to free your brother, Sir Orin, and the men who went with him to Old Town, Jeheris said. But I cannot allow them to go unpunished. The wall is forever, so instead I will sentence them to ten years of exile. They can sell their swords in the disputed lands, or sail to Carth to make their fortunes, it matters not to me. If they survive, and commit no further crimes, in ten years' time they can come home. Are we agreed? We are. Lord Rogar responded. Your grace is more than just. Then he asked if the king would require hostages of him as a surety of his future loyalty. Three of his brothers had young children who could be sent to court, he pointed out. In answer, King Jeheris descended the Iron Throne and bade Lord Rogar follow him. He led his lordship from the hall to the inner ward, where Vermithor was being fed. A bull had been slaughtered for his morning meal and lay upon the stones charred and smoking, for dragons always burn their meat before consuming it. Vermithor was feasting on the flesh, tearing loose great chunks of meat with each bite, but when the king approached with Lord Rogar, the dragon raised his head and gazed at them with eyes like pools of molten bronze. He grows larger every day, Jeheris said as he scratched the great worm under his jaw, Keep your nieces and your nephews, my lord. Why would I need hostages? I have your word. That is all that I require. But Grand Maester Benefer heard the words he did not speak. Every man and maid and child in the Stormlands is my hostage whilst I ride him, his grace said, without saying, wrote Benefer. And Lord Rogar heard him plain. Thus was the peace made between the young king and his former hand, and sealed that night by a feast in the great hall, where Lord Rogar sat beside Queen Alyssa, man and wife once more, and raised a toast to the health of Queen Alessane, pledging her his love and loyalty before all the assembled lords and ladies. Four days later, when Lord Rogar departed to return to Storm's End, Queen Alyssa went with him, escorted by Sir Pate the Woodcock and a hundred men-at-arms to see them safe through the King's Wood. Sir Orin Baratheon never did return to Westeros. Together with the men who had accompanied him to Old Town, he crossed to the free city of Tyrosh, where he took service with the Archon. A year later he married the Archon's daughter, the very maid his brother Rogar had hoped to wed to King Jeheris as a means of securing an alliance between the Iron Throne and the free city. A buxom maid with blue-green hair and a winsome manner, Sir Orin's wife soon gave him a daughter, though there was some doubt whether the girl was truly his, for like many women of the free cities, she was free with her favour. When her father's term as Archon ended, Sir Orin lost his position as well and was forced to leave Tyrosh for Mir, 
where he joined the Maiden's Men, a free company with an especially unsavory reputation. He was killed soon afterward in the disputed lands during a battle with the Men of Valor. We have no knowledge of the fate of his wife and daughter. In King's Landing, the long reign of Jeheris I Targaryen began in earnest. The young king faced a score of problems when he assumed the rule of the Seven Kingdoms, but two loomed larger than all the rest. The treasury was empty, and the crown's debt was mounting, and his secret marriage, which grew less secret with every passing day, sat like a jar of wildfire on a hearth, waiting to explode. Both questions needed to be dealt with, and quickly. The immediate need for gold was resolved by Rigo Draz, the new master of coin, who reached out to the Iron Bank of Bravos and its rivals in Tyrosh and Mir to arrange not one but three substantial loans. By playing each bank against the others, the Lord of Air negotiated as favorable terms as might be hoped for. The securing of the loans had one immediate effect. Work on the Dragon Pit was able to resume, and once again a small army of builders and stonemasons swarmed over the Hill of Rainies. Lord Rigo and his king both realized that the loans were a stopgap measure at best, however. They might slow the bleeding, but they would not staunch the wound. Only taxes could accomplish that. Lord Keltigar's taxes would not serve. Jeheris had no interest in raising port fees or bleeding innkeeps. Nor would he simply demand gold from the lords of the realm as Magor had. Too much of that, and the lords would rise up. Nothing is so costly as putting down rebellions, the king declared. The lords would pay, but of their own free will. He would tax the things they wanted, fine and costly things from across the sea. Silk would be taxed, and samite, cloth of gold and cloth of silver, gemstones, mirish lace and mirish tapestries, dornish wines, but not wines from the arbor, dornish sandsteeds, gilded helms and filigreed armor from the craftsmen of Tyrosh, Lys, and Pentos. Spices would be taxed, heaviest of all. Peppercorns, cloves, saffron, nutmeg, cinnamon, and all the other rare seasonings from beyond the jade gates, already more costly than gold, would become still costlier. We are taxing all the things that made me rich, Lord Rigo draped. No man can claim to be oppressed by these taxes, Jeheris explained to the small council. To avoid them, a man need only forgo his pepper, his silk, his pearls— and he need not pay a groat. The men who want these things desire them desperately, however. How else to flaunt their power and show the world what wealthy men they are? They may squawk, but they will pay. The spice and silk taxes were not the end of it. King Jeheris also brought forth a new law on crenellations. Any lord who wished to build a new castle or expand and repair his existing seat would need to pay a hefty price for the privilege, the new tax served a dual purpose, his grace explained to Grand Maester Benefer. The larger and stronger a castle, the more its lord is tempted to defy me. You would think they might learn from Black Harren, but too many do not know their history. This tax will discourage them from building, whilst those who must build regardless can replenish our treasury whilst they empty theirs. Having done what he could to repair the crown's finances, his grace turned his attention to the other great matter awaiting him. At long last, he sent for his queen. Alisan Targaryen and her dragon Silverwing departed Dragonstone within an hour of his summons, after having been apart from the king for nigh on half a year. The rest of her household followed by ship. 
By this time, even blind beggars in the alleys of Flea Bottom knew that Alisan and Jeheris had been wed, but for the sake of propriety the king and queen slept separately for a moon's turn, whilst preparations were made for their second wedding. The king was not disposed to spend coin he did not have on another golden wedding, as splendid and popular as that event had been. Forty thousand had witnessed his mother marry Lord Rogar. A thousand came together in the Red Keep to see Jeheris take his sister Alisan to wife again. This time it was Septon Bath who pronounced them man and wife beneath the Iron Throne. Lord Rogar Baratheon and the Dowager Queen Alyssa were amongst those standing witness this time. Together with his lordship's brothers Garen and Ronald, they had made their way back from Storm's End to attend the ceremony. But it was another wedding guest who excited the most talk. The Queen in the West had come as well. Born on the wings of Dreamfire, Raina Targaryen had flown in to see her siblings wed, and to visit her daughter Arya. Bells rang throughout the city as the rites were concluded, and a flight of ravens took wing to every corner of the realm to proclaim this happy union. The king's second wedding differed from his first in one other crucial respect. It was followed by a bedding. Queen Alessandre in later years would declare that this was at her insistence. She was ready to lose her maidenhead, and she wanted no more questions as to whether she were truly married. Lord Rogar himself, a roaring drunk, led the men who disrobed her and carried her to the bridal bed, whilst the Queen's companions, Jenis Templeton, Rosamond Ball, and Prudence and Prunella Keltigar, were amongst those who did the honours for the King. There, upon a canopied bed in Magor's Holdfast, in the Red Keep of King's Landing, the marriage of Jeheris Targaryen and his sister Alisan was consummated at long last, sealing their union for all time before the eyes of gods and men. With secrecy finally at an end, the king and his court waited to see how the realm would respond. Jeheris had concluded that the violent opposition that had greeted his brother Aegon's marriage had several causes. Their uncle Magor's taking of a second wife in 39 AC, in defiance of both the High Septon and his own brother King Aenys, had shattered the delicate understanding between the Iron Throne and the Starry Sept, so the marriage of Aegon and Rhaena had been seen as a further outrage. The denunciation thus provoked had lit a fire across the land, and the swords and stars had taken up the torches, along with a score of pious lords who feared the gods more than their king. Prince Aegon and Princess Rhaena had been little known amongst the small folk, and they had begun their progress without dragons, in large part because Aegon was not yet a dragon rider, which left them vulnerable to the mobs that sprung up to attack them in the Riverlands. None of these conditions applied to Jeheris and Alisan. There would be no denunciation from the starry sept, whilst some amongst the most devout still bristled at the Targaryen tradition of sibling marriage, the present High Septon, Septon Moon's High Lickspittle, was complacent and cautious, not inclined to wake sleeping dragons. The swords and stars had been broken and outlawed, only at the wall where two thousand former poor fellows now wore the black cloaks of the Night's Watch did they have sufficient numbers to be troublesome were they so inclined. And King Jeheris was not about to repeat his brother's mistake. He and his queen meant to see the land they ruled, to learn its needs firsthand, to meet his lords and take their measure, to let themselves be seen by the small folk and to hear their griefs in turn. But wherever they went, it would be with their dragon.
For all these reasons, Jaehaerys believed that the realm would accept his marriage. But he was not a man to trust in chance. Words are wind, he told his council, but wind can fan a fire. My father and my uncle fought words with steel and flame. We shall fight words with words, and put out the fires before they start. And so saying, his grace sent forth not knights and men-at-arms, but preachers. Tell every man you meet of Alisan's kindness, her sweet and gentle nature, and her love for all the people of our kingdom, great and small, the king charged them. Seven went forth at his command, three men and four women. In place of swords and axes, they were armed only with their wits, their courage, and their tongues. Many a tale would be told of their travels, and their exploits would become legends, growing vastly larger in the process, as is the way of legends. Only one of the seven speakers was known to the common folks of the realm when they set out, no less a person than Queen Eleanor herself, the black bride who had found Magor dead upon the Iron Throne. Clad in her queenly raiment, which grew shabbier and more threadbare by the day, Eleanor of House Costain would travel the reach, giving eloquent testimony to the evil of her late king and the goodness of his successors. In later years, giving up all claims to nobility, she would join the faith, rising eventually to become Mother Eleanor at the great mother house in Lannisport. The names of the other six who went forth to speak for Jaehaerys would in time become nigh as famous as the queen's. Three were young Septons, cunning Septon Baldric, learned Septon Rollo, and fierce old Septon Alfin, who had lost his legs years before and was carried everywhere in a litter. The women the young king chose were no less extraordinary. Scepter Isabel had been won over by Queen Alessane whilst serving her on Dragonstone. Diminutive Scepter Violante was renowned for her skills as a healer. Everywhere she went it was said she performed miracles. From the Vale came Mother Maris, who had taught generations of orphan girls at a mother house on an island in Gulltown's harbour. In their travels throughout the realm, the seven speakers talked of Queen Alessane, her piety, her generosity and her love for the king, her brother. But for those septons, begging brothers and pious knights and lords, who challenged them by citing passages from the seven-pointed star, or the sermons of high septons past, they had a ready answer, one that Jaehaerys himself had crafted in King's Landing, ably assisted by Septon Oswick and, especially, Septon Bath. In later years, the citadel and the starry sept alike would call it the Doctrine of Exceptionalism. Its basic tenet was simple. The faith of the Seven had been born in the hills of Andalus of old, and had crossed the narrow sea with the Andals. The laws of the Seven, as laid down in sacred text and taught by the Septers and Septons in obedience to the Father of the Faithful, decreed that brother might not lie with sister, nor father with daughter, nor mother with son, that the fruits of such unions were abominations, loathsome in the eyes of the gods. All this the exceptionalists affirmed, but with this caveat, the Targaryens were different. Their roots were not in Andalus, but in Valyria of old, where different laws and traditions held sway. A man had only to look at them to know that they were not like other men. Their eyes, their hair, their very bearing all proclaimed their differences and they flew dragons. They alone of all the men in the world had been given the power to tame those fearsome beasts once the doom had come to Valyria. One god made us all, 
Andals and Valyrians and first men, Septon Alfin would proclaim from his litter, but he did not make us all alike. He made the lion and the aurochs as well, both noble beasts, but certain gifts he gave to one and not the other, and the lion cannot live as an aurochs, nor an aurochs as a lion. For you to bed your sister would be a grievous sin, sir, but you are not the blood of the dragon no more than I am. What they do is what they have always done, and it is not for us to judge them. Legend tells us that in one small village the quick-witted Septon Baldrick was confronted by a burly hedge knight, once a poor fellow, who said, Aye, and if I want to fuck my sister too, do I have your leave? The Septon smiled and replied, Go to Dragonstone and claim a dragon. If you can do that, sir, I will marry you and your sister myself. Here is a quandary every student of history must face. When looking back upon the things that happened in years past, we can say this and this and this were the causes of what occurred. When looking back on things that did not happen, however, we have only surmised. We know the realm did not rise up against King Jaehaerys and Queen Alisan in 51 AC as it had against Aegon and Rhaenor ten years earlier. The why of it is a good deal less certain. The High Septon's silence spoke loudly, no doubt, and the lords and common folk alike were weary of war. But if words have power, wind or no, surely the seven speakers played a part as well. Though the king was happy in his queen and the realm happy with their marriage, Jaehaerys had not been wrong when he foresaw that he would face a time of testing. Having remade the council, reconciled Lord Rogar and Queen Alyssa, and imposed new taxes to restore the crown's coffers, he was faced with what would prove to be his thorniest problem yet, his sister Raina. Since taking her leave of Lyman Lannister and Casterly Rock, Raina Targaryen and her travelling court had made their own royal progress of sorts, visiting the Marbrands of Ashmark, the Rains of Castamere, the Leffords at the Golden Tooth, the Vances at Wayfarer's Rest, and finally the Pipers of Pink Maiden. No matter where she turned, the same problems arose. They are all warm at first, she told her brother when she met with him after his wedding, but it does not last. Either I am unwelcome or too welcome. They murmur of the cost of keeping me and mine, but it is Dreamfire who excites them. Some fear her, more want her, and it is those who trouble me most. They lust for dragons of their own. That I will not give them. But where am I to go? Here, the king suggested, return to court. And live forever in your shadow? I need a seat of my own, a place where no lord may threaten me, banish me, or trouble those I have taken under my protection. I need lands, men, a castle. We can find you lands, the king said. Build you a castle. All the lands are taken, all the castles occupied, Rayner replied. But there is one I have a claim to, a better claim than your own, brother. I am the blood of the dragon. I want my father's seat, the place where I was born. I want Dragonstone. To that, King Jaehaerys had no answer, promising only to take the matter under consideration. His council, when the question was put to them, were united in their opposition to ceding the ancestral seat of House Targaryen to the widowed queen. But none had any better solution to offer. After reflecting on the matter, his grace met with his sister again. 
I will grant you Dragonstone as your seat, he told her, for there is no place more fitting for the blood of the dragon. But you shall hold the island and the castle by my gift, not by right. Our grandsire made seven kingdoms into one, with fire and blood. I cannot and will not make them two by carving you off a separate kingdom of your own. You are a queen by courtesy, but I am king, and my writ runs from Old Town to the Wall, and on Dragonstone as well. Are we of one mind on this, sister? Are you so uncertain of that iron seat that you must needs have your own blood bend the knee to your brother? Rainer threw back at him. So be it. Give me Dragonstone and one thing more, and I shall trouble you no further. One thing more? Jaehaerys asked. Aria, I want my daughter restored to me. Done, the king said. Mayhaps too hastily, for it must be remembered that Aria Targaryen, a girl of eight, was his own acknowledged successor, heir apparent to the Iron Throne. The consequences of this decision would not be known for years to come, however. For the nonce, it was done, and the queen in the west, at a stroke, became the queen in the east. The year continued without further crisis or test as Jeheris and Alisan settled in to rule. If certain members of the small council were taken aback when the queen began to attend their meetings, they voiced their objections only to one another. And soon not even that, for the young queen proved to be wise, well-read and clever, a welcome voice in any discussion. Alessand Targaryen had happy memories of her childhood before her uncle Magor seized the crown. During the reign of her father, Aenys, her mother, Queen Alyssa, had made the court a splendid place, filled with song, spectacle and beauty. Musicians, mummers and bards competed for her favour and that of the king. Wines from the arbour flowed like water at their feasts. The halls and yards of Dragonstone rang with laughter, and the women of the court dazzled in pearls and diamonds. Magor's court had been a grim, dark place, and the regency had offered little change, for the memories of King Aenys's time were painful to his widow, whilst Lord Rogar was of a martial temperament, and once declared mummers to be of less use than monkeys, for... They both prance about, tumble, caper, and squeal, but if a man is hungry enough, he can eat a monkey. Queen Alisanne looked back on the short-lived glories of her father's court fondly, however, and made it her purpose to make the red keep glitter as it never had before, buying tapestries and carpets from free cities, and commissioning murals, statuary, and tilework to decorate the castle's halls and chambers. At her command, men from the city watch combed Flea Bottom until they found Tom the Strummer, whose mocking songs had amused king and commons alike during the war for the white cloaks. Alisan made him the court singer, the first of many who would hold that office in the decades to come. She brought in a harpist from Old Town, a company of mummers from Bravos, dancers from Lys, and gave the Red Keep its first fool, a fat man called the Goodwife, who dressed as a woman and was never seen without his wooden children, a pair of cleverly carved puppets who said ribald, shocking things. All this pleased King Jeheris, but none of it pleased him half so much as the gift that Queen Alisan gave him several moons later, when she told him she was with child. Birth, Death, and Betrayal Under King Jeheris I Jaehaerys I Targaryen 
would prove to be as restless a king as ever sat the Iron Throne. Aegon the Conqueror had famously said that the small folk needed to see their kings and queens from time to time, so they might lay their griefs and grievances before them. I mean for them to see me, Jaehaerys declared when announcing his first royal progress late in 51 AC. Many more were to follow in the years and decades to come. During the course of his long reign, Jaehaerys would spend more days and nights guesting with one lord or another, or holding audience in some market town or village, than at Dragonstone and the Red Keep combined. And oft as not, Alisan was with him, her silvery dragon soaring beside his great beast of burnished bronze. Aegon the Conqueror had been accustomed to taking as many as a thousand knights, men-at-arms, grooms, cooks, and other servants with him on the road. Whilst undeniably grand to behold, such processions created many difficulties for the lords honoured by royal visits. So many men were difficult to house and feed, and if the king wished to go hunting, nearby woods would be overrun. Even the richest lord would oft find himself impoverished by the time the king departed, his cellars drunk dry of wine, his larders empty, and half his maidservants with bastards in their bellies. Jaehaerys was resolved to do things differently. No more than one hundred men would accompany him on any progress. Twenty knights, the rest men-at-arms and servants. I do not need to ring myself about with swords so long as I ride Vermithor, he said. Smaller numbers also allowed him to visit smaller lords, those whose castles had never been large enough to host Aegon. His intent was to see and be seen at more places, but stay at each a shorter time so as never to become an unwelcome guest. The king's first progress was meant to be a modest one, commencing with the crownlands north of King's Landing, and proceeding only as far as the Vale of Arran. Jaehaerys wanted Alisan with him, but as her grace was with child, he was concerned that their journeys not be too taxing. They began with Stokeworth and Rosby, then moved north along the coast to Duskendale. There, whilst the king viewed Lord Darklin's boatyards and enjoyed an afternoon of fishing, the queen held the first of her women's courts, which were to become an important part of every royal progress to come. Only women and girls were welcome at these audiences. High-born or low, they were encouraged to come forward and share their fears, concerns, and hopes with the young queen. The journey went without incident until the king and queen reached Maidenpool, where they were to be the guests of Lord and Lady Mooton for a fortnight, before sailing across the Bay of Crabs to Wickenden, Gulltown, and the Vale. The town of Maidenpool was far famed for the Sweetwater Pool, where legend had it that Florian the Fool had first glimpsed Jonquil bathing during the Age of Heroes. Like thousands of other women before her, Queen Alisan wished to bathe in Jonquil's pool, whose waters were said to have amazing healing properties. The Lords of Maidenpool had erected a great stone bathhouse around the pool many centuries before, and given it over to an order of holy sisters. No men were allowed to enter the premises, so when the Queen slipped into the sacred waters, she was attended only by her ladies-in-waiting, maids and scepters. Edith and Lyra, who had served beside Scepter Isabel as novices, had both recently sworn their vows to become scepters, consecrated in the faith and devoted to the queen. The goodness of the little queen, the silence of the starry sept, and the exhortations of the seven speakers had won over most of the faithful for Jaehaerys and his Alisan, but there are always some who will not be moved. And amongst the sisters who tended Jonquil's pool, 
were three such women, whose hearts were hard with hate. They told one another that their holy waters would be polluted forever, were the queen allowed to bathe in them whilst carrying the king's abomination in her belly. Queen Alisan had only slipped out of her clothing when they fell upon her with daggers they had concealed within their robes. Blessedly, the attackers were no warriors, and they had not taken the courage of the queen's companions into account. Naked and vulnerable, the wise women did not hesitate, but stepped between the attackers and their lady. Scepter Edith was slashed across the face, Prudence Keltigar stabbed through the shoulder, whilst Rosamond Ball took a dagger in the belly that three days later proved to be the death of her. But none of the murderous blades touched the queen. The shouts and screams of the struggle brought Alisan's protectors running, for Sir Geoffrey Doggett and Sir Giles Morrigan had been guarding the entrance to the bathhouse, never dreaming that the danger lurked within. The king's guard made short work of the attackers, slaying two out of hand whilst keeping the third alive for questioning. When encouraged, she revealed that half a dozen others of their order had helped plan the attack, whilst lacking the courage to wield a blade. Lord Mouton hanged the guilty, and might have hanged the innocent as well, save for Queen Alisan's intervention. Jeheris was furious. Their visit to the Vale was postponed. Instead, they returned to the safety of Magor's holdfast. Queen Alisan would remain within until her child was born, but the experience had shaken her and set her to pondering. I need a protector of mine own, she told his grace. Your seven are leal men and valiant, but they are men, and there are places men cannot go. The king could not disagree. A raven flew to Duskendale that very night, commanding the new Lord Darklin to send to court his bastard half-sister, Jonquil Dark who had thrilled the small folk during the war for the white cloaks as the mystery knight known as the Serpent in Scarlet. Still in Scarlet, she arrived at King's Landing a few days later, and gladly accepted appointment as the Queen's own sworn shield. In time she would be known about the realm as the Scarlet Shadow, so closely did she guard her lady. Not long after Jeheris and Alisan returned from Maidenpool and the Queen took to her bedchamber, Tidings of the most wondrous and unexpected sort came forth from Storm's End. Queen Alyssa was with child. At forty-four years of age, the Dowager Queen had been thought to be well beyond her childbearing years, so her pregnancy was received as a miracle. In Old Town, the High Septon himself proclaimed it was a blessing from the gods, a gift from the mother above to a mother who had suffered much and bravely. Amidst the joy, there was concern as well. Alyssa was not as strong as she had been. Her time as Queen Regent had taken a toll on her, and her second marriage had not brought her the happiness she had once hoped for. The prospect of a child warmed Lord Rogar's heart, however, and he cast off his anger and repented of his infidelities to stay by his wife's side. Alyssa herself was fearful, mindful of the last babe she had borne to King Aenys, the little girl Vela, who had died in the cradle. I cannot suffer that again, she told her lord husband. It would rip my heart apart. But the child, when he came early the following year, would prove to be robust and healthy, a big, red-faced boy born with a fuzz of jet-black hair and a squall that could be heard from dawn to the war. Lord Rogar, who had long ago put aside any hopes of having children by Elissa, named his son Boromund. The gods give grief as well as joy. Long before her mother was brought to term, 
Queen Alisan was also delivered of a son, a boy she named Aegon, to honor both the conqueror and her lost and much lamented brother, the uncrowned prince. All the realm gave thanks, and no one more so than Jaehaerys. But the young prince had come too early. Small and frail, he died three days after birth. So bereft was Queen Alisan that the maesters feared for her life as well. Forever after, she blamed her son's death on the women who attacked her at Maidenpool. Had she been allowed to bathe in the healing waters of John Quill's pool, she would say, Prince Aegon would have lived. Discontent lay heavy upon Dragonstone as well, where Reyna Targaryen had established her own small court. As they had with Jaehaerys before her, neighboring lords began to seek her out. But the queen in the east was not her brother. Many of her visitors were received coldly, others turned away without an audience. Queen Rhaena's reunion with her daughter Aria had not gone well either. The princess had no memory of her mother, and the queen no knowledge of her child, nor any fondness for the children of others. Aria had loved the excitement of the Red Keep, with lords and ladies and envoys from queer foreign lands coming and going, knights training in the yards every morning, singers and mummers and fools capering by night, and all the clangor and color and tumult of kings landing just beyond the walls. She had loved the attention lavished on her as the heir to the Iron Throne as well. Great lords, gallant knights, bedmaids, washerwomen, and stable boys alike had praised her, loved her, and vied for her favor. And she had been the leader of a pack of young girls of both high and low birth who had terrorized the castle. All that had been taken from her when her mother carried her off to Dragonstone against her wishes. Compared to King's Landing, the island was a dull place, sleepy and quiet. There were no girls of her own age in the castle, and Aria was not allowed to mingle with the daughters of the fisherfolk in the village beneath the walls. Her mother was a stranger to her, sometimes stern and sometimes shy, much given to brooding, and the women who surrounded her seemed to take little interest in Aria. Of all of them, the only one the princess warned to was Elissa Farman of Fair Isle, who told her tales of her adventures and promised to teach her how to sail. Lady Elissa was no happier on Dragonstone than Aria herself, however. She missed her wide western seas and spoke often of returning to them. Take me with you, Princess Aria would say when she did, and Elissa Farman would laugh. Dragonstone did have one thing King's Landing largely lacked, dragons. In the great citadel under the shadow of the Dragonmont, more dragons were being born every time the moon turned, or so it seemed. The eggs that Dreamfire had laid on Fair Isle had all hatched once on Dragonstone, and Reyna Targaryen had made certain that her daughter made their acquaintance. Choose one and make him yours, the queen urged the princess, and one day you will fly. There were older dragons in the yards as well, and beyond the walls, wild dragons that had escaped the castle made their lairs in hidden caves on the far side of the mountain. Princess Aria had known Vermithor and Silverwing during her time at court, but she had never been allowed too close to them. Here she could visit with the dragons as often as she liked. The hatchlings, the young drakes, her mother's dreamfire, and greatest of them all, Valerian and Vagar huge and ancient and sleepy, but still terrifying when they woke and stirred and spread their wings. In the Red Keep, Aria had loved her horse, her hounds, and her friends. On Dragonstone, 
The dragons became her friends, her only friends aside from Elisa Farman, and she began to count the days until she could mount one and fly far, far away. King Jeheris finally made his progress through the Vale of Arryn in 52 AC, calling at Gulltown, Runestone, Redfort, Longbow Hall, Hartsholm, and the Gates of the Moon, before flying Vermithor up the giant's lance to the Eyrie, as Queen Visenya had done during the conquest. Queen Alisan accompanied him for part of his travels, but not all. She had not yet recovered her full strength after childbirth and the grief that followed. Still, by her good offices, the betrothal of Lady Prudence Keltigar to Lord Grafton of Galtown was arranged. Her grace also held a women's court at Galtown and a second at the Gates of the Moon. What she heard and learned would change the laws of the Seven Kingdoms. Men oft speak today of Queen Alisanne's laws, but this usage is sloppy and incorrect. Her grace had no power to enact laws, issue decrees, make proclamations, or pass sentences. It is a mistake to speak of her as we might speak of the conquerors, queens, Rhaenys, and Visenya. The young queen did, however, wield enormous influence over King Jeheris, and when she spoke, he listened, as he did upon their return from the Vale of Arryn. It was the plight of widows throughout the Seven Kingdoms that the women's courts had made Alisanne aware of. In times of peace especially, it was not uncommon for a man to outlive the wife of his youth, for young men most oft perish upon the battlefield, young women in the birthing bed. Be they of noble birth or humble, men left bereft suchwise would oft after a time take second wives, whose presence in the household was resented by the children of the first wife. Where no bonds of affection existed, upon the man's own death his heirs could and did expel the widow from the home, reducing her to penury. In the case of lords, the heirs might simply strip away the widow's prerogatives, incomes, and servants, reducing her to little more than a boarder. To rectify these ills, King Jeheris in 52 AC promulgated the widow's law, reaffirming the right of the eldest son, or eldest daughter where there was no son, to inherit, but requiring said heirs to maintain surviving widows in the same condition they had enjoyed before their husband's death. A lord's widow, be she a second, third, or later wife, could no longer be driven from his castle, nor deprived of her servants, clothing, and income. The same law, however, also forbade men from disinheriting their children by a first wife in order to bestow their lands, seat, or property upon a later wife or her own children. Building was the king's other concern that year. Work continued on the dragon pit, and Jeheris oft visited the site to see the progress with his own eyes. Whilst riding from Aegon's high hill to the hill of Rhaenys, however, his grace took note of the most lamentable state of his city. King's Landing had grown too fast, with manses and shops and hovels and rat pits springing up like mushrooms after a hard rain. The streets were close and dark and filthy, with buildings so close to one another that men could clamber from one window to another. The wines coiled about like drunken snakes. Mud, manure, and night soil were everywhere. Would that I could empty the city, knock it down, and build it all anew, the king told his council. Lacking that power, and the coin such a massive undertaking would have required, Jeheris did what he could. Streets were widened, straightened, and cobbled where possible. The worst styes and hovels were torn down. 
A great central square was carved out and planted with trees, with markets and arcades beneath. From that hub, long, wide streets sprung, straight as spears, the King's Way, the God's Way, the Street of the Sisters, Blackwater Way, or the Muddy Way, as the small folk soon renamed it. And none of this could be accomplished in a night. Work would continue for years, even decades. But it was the year 52 AC when it began by the king's command. The cost of rebuilding the city was not inconsequential and put further strain upon the crown's treasury. Those difficulties were exacerbated by the growing unpopularity of the Lord of Air, Rigo Draz. In a short time, the Pentoshi master of coin had become as widely loathed as his predecessor, though for different reasons. He was said to be corrupt, taking the king's gold to fatten his own purse, a charge Lord Rigo treated with derision. Why should I steal from the king? I am twice as rich as he is. He was said to be godless, for he did not worship the seven. Many a queer god is worshipped in Pentos, but Draz was known to keep but one, a small household idol, like unto a woman great with child with swollen breasts and a bat's head. She is all the god I need, was all he would say upon the matter. He was said to be a mongrel, an assertion he could not deny for all Pentosia, part Andal and part Valyrian, mixed with a stock of slaves and older peoples long forgotten. Most of all, he was resented for his wealth, which he did not deign to conceal, but flaunted with his silken robes, ruby rings, and gilded palanquin. The Lord Rigodraz was an able master of coin, even his enemies could not deny but the challenge of paying for the completion of the dragon pit and the rebuilding of King's Landing strained even his talents. The taxes on silk, spice, and crenellations alone could not answer, so Lord Rigo reluctantly imposed a new levy, a gate fee, required of anyone entering or leaving the city, collected by the guards on the city's gates. Additional fees were assessed for horses, mules, donkeys, and oxen, and wagons and carts were taxed heaviest of all. Given the amount of traffic that came and went from King's Landing every day, the gate tax proved to be highly lucrative, bringing in more than enough coin to meet the need, but at considerable cost to Rigo Draz himself, as the grumbling against him increased tenfold. A long summer, plentiful harvests and peace and prosperity both at home and abroad helped to blunt the edge of the discontent, however, and as the year drew to a close, Queen Alessan brought the king splendid news. Her grace was once again with child. This time she vowed no enemies would come near her. Plans for a second royal progress had already been made and announced before the queen's condition became known. Though Jeheris decided at once that he would remain by his wife's side until the babe was born, Alessan would not have it. He must go, she insisted. And so he did. The coming of the new year saw the king taking to the sky again on Vermithor, this time for the Riverlands. His progress began with a stay at Harrenhal as a guest of its new lord, the nine-year-old Magor Towers. From there he and his retinue moved on to Riverrun, Acorn Hall, Pink Maiden, Atranta, and Stony Sept. At his queen's request, Lady Janice Templeton travelled with the king to hold women's courts at Riverrun and Stony Sept in her place. Alisan remained in the Red Keep, presiding over council meetings in the king's absence and holding audience from a velvet seat at the base of the Iron Throne.
As her grace grew great with child, just across Blackwater Bay, by the gullet, another woman was delivered of another child, whose birth, whilst less noted, would in time be of great significance to the lands of Westeros and the seas that lay beyond. On the Isle of Driftmark, Damon Valerian's eldest son became a father for the first time when his lady wife presented him with a handsome, healthy boy. The babe was named Corlys, after the great-great-uncle who had served so nobly as the Lord Commander of the First Kingsguard. But in the years to come, the people of Westeros would come to know this new Corlys better as the Sea Snake. The Queen's own child followed in due course. She was brought to bed during the seventh moon of 53 AC, and this time she gave birth to a strong and healthy child, a girl she named Daenerys. The king was at Stony Set when word reached him. He mounted Vermithor and flew back to King's Landing at once. Though Jaehaerys had hoped for another son to follow him upon the Iron Throne, it was plain that he doted on his daughter from the moment he first took her in his arms. The realm delighted in the little princess as well. Everywhere, that is, save on Dragonstone. Arya Targaryen, the daughter of Aegon the Uncrowned and his sister Rhaena, was eleven years of age and had been heir to the Iron Throne for as long as she could remember, but for the three days that separated Prince Aegon's birth from his death. A strong-willed, bold-tongued, fiery young girl, Arya delighted in the attention that came with being a queen-in-waiting, and was not pleased to find herself displaced by the newborn princess. Her mother, Queen Rhaena, likely shared these feelings, but she held her tongue and spoke no word of it, even to her closest confidants. She had trouble enough in her own hall at the time, for a rift had opened between her and her beloved Alyssa Farman. Denied any part of the incomes of Fair Isle by her brother Lord Franklin, Alyssa asked the Dowager Queen for gold sufficient to build a new ship in the shipyards of Driftmark, a large, swift vessel meant to sail the Sunset Sea. Rena denied her request. I could not bear for you to leave me, she said. But Lady Alyssa heard only, no. With the hindsight of history to guide us, we can look back and see that all the portents were there, ominous signs of difficult days ahead. But even the archmaesters of the conclave saw none of that as they reflected on the year about to end. Not one of them realized that the year ahead would be amongst the darkest in the long reign of Jaehaerys I Targaryen, a year so marked by death, division, and disaster that the maesters and small folk alike would come to call it the Year of the Stranger. The first death of 54 AC came within days of the celebrations that marked the coming of the new year, as Septon Oswick passed in his sleep. He was an old man and had been failing for some time, but his passing cast a pall over the court all the same. At a time when the Queen Regent, the King's Hand, and the Faith had all opposed the marriage of Jaehaerys and Alisan, Oswick had agreed to perform the rites for them, and his courage had not been forgotten. At the king's request, his remains were interred on Dragonstone, where he had served so long and so faithfully. The Red Keep was still in mourning when the next blow fell, though at the time it seemed an occasion for joy. A raven from Storm's End delivered an astonishing message. Queen Alyssa was once again with child at the age of forty-six. A second miracle! Grand Maester Benefer proclaimed when he told the king the news. 
Septon Bath, who had taken on Oswick's duties after his death, was more doubtful. Her grace had never completely recovered from the birth of her son, Boromond, he cautioned. He questioned whether she still had strength enough to carry a child to term. Rogar Baratheon was elated at the prospect of another son, however, and foresaw no difficulties. His wife had given birth to seven children, he insisted. Why not an eighth? On Dragonstone, problems of another sort were coming to a head. Lady Alyssa Farman could suffer life upon the island no more. She had heard the sea calling, she told Queen Raina. It was time for her to take her leave. Never one to make a show of her emotions, the Queen in the East received the news stone-faced. I have asked you to stay, she said. I will not beg. If you would go, go. Princess Aria had none of her mother's restraint. When Lady Alyssa came to say her farewells, the princess wept and clung to her leg, pleading with her to stay, or failing that, to take her along. I want to be with you, Aria said. I want to sail the seas and have adventures. Lady Alyssa shed a tear as well, we are told, but she pushed the princess away gently and told her, No, child, your place is here. Elisa Farman departed for Driftmark the next morning. From there she took ship across the narrow sea to Pentos. Thereafter she made her way overland to Bravos, whose shipwrights were far-famed, but Raina Targaryen and Princess Aria had no notion of her final destination. The Queen believed she had gone no farther than Driftmark. Lady Elisa had good reason for wanting more distance between her and the Queen, however. A fortnight after her departure, Sir Merrill Bullock, still commander of the castle garrison, brought three terrified grooms and the keeper of the dragon yard into Rayner's presence. Three dragon eggs were missing, and days of searching had not turned them up. After questioning every man who had access to the dragons closely, Sir Merrill was convinced that Lady Alyssa had made off with them. If this betrayal by one she had loved wounded Rayner Targaryen, she hid it well, but there was no hiding her fury. She commanded Sir Merrill to question the grooms and stable boys more sharply. When the questioning proved fruitless, she relieved him of his command and expelled him from Dragonstone, together with his son, Sir Allen, and a dozen other men she found suspicious. She even went so far as to summon her husband, Andrew Farman, demanding to know if he had been complicit in his sister's crime. His denials only goaded her to more rage, until their shouts could be heard echoing through the halls of Dragonstone. She sent men to Driftmark, only to learn that Lady Alyssa had sailed to Pentos. She sent men to Pentos, but there the trail went cold. Only then did Raina Targaryen mount Dreamfire to fly to the Red Keep and inform her brother of what had transpired. Elisa had no love for dragons, she told the king. It was gold she wanted, gold to build a ship. She will sell the eggs. They are worth a fleet of ships. Jaehaerys had received his sister in his solar, with only Grand Maester Benefer present to bear witness to what was said. If those eggs should hatch, there will be another dragon lord in the world, one not of our own house. They may not hatch, Benefer said. Not away from Dragonstone. The heat... It is known some dragon eggs simply turn to stone. Then some spice-monger in Pentos will find himself possessed of three very costly stones, Jeheris said. Elsewise, 
The birth of three young dragons is not a thing that can easily be kept secret. Whoever has them will want to crow. We must have eyes and ears in Pentos, Tyrosh, Mir, all the free cities. Offer rewards for any word of dragons. What do you mean to do? His sister Raina asked him. What I must, what you must. Do not think to wash your hands of this, sweet sister. You wanted Dragonstone, and I gave it to you. And you brought this woman there, this thief. The long reign of Jaehaerys I Targaryen was a peaceful one, for the most part. Such wars as he fought were few and short. Let no man mistake Jaehaerys for his father Aenys, however. There was nothing weak about him, nothing indecisive. As his sister Reyna and Grand Maester Benefer witnessed then, when the king went on to say, Should the dragons turn up, anywhere from here to Yi-Ti, we will demand their return. They were stolen from us, they are ours by right. If that demand should be denied, then we must needs go and get them. Take them back if we can, kill them if not. No hatchlings can hope to stand against Vermithor and Dreamfire. And Silverwing? asked Reyna. Our sister had no part in this. I will not put her at risk. The queen in the east smiled then. She is Rhaenys, and I am Visenya. I have never thought otherwise. Grand Maester Benefer said, You are speaking of waging war across the narrow sea, your grace. The costs must needs be borne. I will not allow Valyria to rise again. Imagine what the triarchs of Volantis would do with dragons. Let us pray it never comes to that. With that, his grace ended the audience, cautioning the others not to speak of the missing eggs. No one must know of this but we three. It was too late for such cautions, though. On Dragonstone the theft was common knowledge, even amongst the fisherfolk. And fisherfolk, as is known, sailed to other islands, and thus the whispers spread. Benefer, acting through the Pentoche master of coin, who had agents in every port, reached out across the narrow sea as the king had commanded, paying good coin to bad men, in the words of Rigo Draz, for any news of dragon eggs, dragons, or Elisafarman. A small host of whisperers, informers, courtiers, and courtesans produced hundreds of reports, a score of which proved to be of value to the Iron Throne for other reasons, but every rumour of the dragon eggs proved worthless. We know now that Lady Elissa made her way to Bravos after Pentos, though not before taking on a new name. Having been driven from Fair Isle and disowned by her brother, Lord Franklin, she took on a bastard name of her own devising, calling herself Alice Westhill. Under that name, she secured an audience with the Sea Lord of Bravos. The Sea Lord's menagerie was far famed, and he was glad to buy the dragon eggs. The gold she received in return she entrusted to the Iron Bank, and used it to finance the building of the Sun Chaser, the ship she had dreamed of for many a year. None of this was known on Westeros at the time, however, and soon enough King Jaehaerys had a fresh concern. In the starry sept of Old Town, the High Septon had collapsed whilst ascending a flight of steps to his bedchamber. He was dead before he reached the bottom. All across the realm, bells in every sept sang a dolorous song. The father of the faithful had gone to join the seven. The king had no time for prayer or grieving, though. As soon as his holiness was interred, the most devout would be assembling in the starry sept to choose his successor, 
and Jeheris knew that the peace of the realm depended on the new man continuing the policies of his predecessor. The king had his own candidate for the crystal crown, Septon Bath, who had come to oversee the Red Keep's library, only to become one of his most trusted advisers. It took half the night for Bath himself to persuade his grace of the folly of his choice. He was too young, too little known, too unorthodox in his opinions, not even one of the most devout. He had no hope of being chosen. They would need another candidate, one more acceptable to his brothers of the faith. The king and the lords of the council were agreed on one thing, however. They must needs do all they could to make certain that Septon Matthias was not chosen. His tenure in King's Landing had left a legacy of mistrust behind it, and Jeheris could neither forgive nor forget his words at the gates of Dragonstone. Rigo Draz suggested that some well-placed bribes might produce the desired result. Spread enough gold amongst these most devout, and they will choose me, he japed, though I would not want the job. Damon Valerian and Carl Corbray advocated a show of force, though Lord Damon wished to send his fleet whilst Lord Carl offered to lead an army. Albin Massey, the bent-backed master of laws, wondered if Septon Matthias might suffer the same fate as the High Septon who had made such trouble for Aenys and Magor, a sudden, mysterious death. Septon Bath, Grand Maester Benefer and Queen Alisan were horrified by all these proposals, and the king rejected them out of hand. He and the queen would go to Old Town at once, he decided instead. His High Holiness had been a leal servant to the gods and a staunch friend to the Iron Throne. It was only right that they be there to see him laid to rest. The only way to reach Old Town in time was by dragon. All the lords of the council, even Septon Bath, were made uneasy by the thought of the king and queen alone in Old Town. There are still those amongst my brothers who do not love your grace, Bath pointed out. Lord Damon agreed and reminded Jeheris of what had befallen the queen at Maidenpool. When the king insisted that he would have the protection of the high tower, uneasy glances were exchanged. Lord Donald is a schemer and a sulker, said Manfred Redwine. I do not trust him, nor should you. He does what he thinks best for himself, his house, and old town, and cares not a fig for anyone or anything else, not even for his king. Then I must convince him that what is best for his king is what is best for himself, his house, and old town, said Jeheris. I believe I can do that. So he ended the discussion and gave orders for their dragons to be brought forth. Even for a dragon... The flight from King's Landing to Old Town is a long one. The king and queen stopped twice along the way, once at Bitterbridge and once at Highgarden, resting overnight and taking counsel with their lords. The lords of the council had insisted that they take some protection at the very least. Sir Geoffrey Doggart flew with Alisan, and the Scarlet Shadow, Jonquil Dark, with Jeheris, so as to balance the weight each dragon carried. The unexpected arrival of Vermithor and Silverwing at Old Town brought thousands to the streets to point and stare. No word of their coming had been sent ahead, and there were many in the city who were frightened, wondering what this might portend. None, mayhaps, more than Septon Matthias, who turned pale when he was told. Jeheris brought down Vermithor on the wide marble plaza outside the starry sept. But it was his queen who made the city gasp, when Silverwing alighted atop the high tower itself, 
the beating of her wings fanning the flames of its famous beacon. Though the High Septon's funeral rites were the purported reason for their visit, his High Holiness had already been interred in the crypts beneath the starry sept by the time the king and queen arrived. Jeheris gave a eulogy nonetheless, addressing a huge crowd of septons, maesters, and small folk in the plaza. At the end of his remarks, he announced that he and the queen would remain in Old Town until the new High Septon had been chosen, so we might ask for his blessing. As Archmaester Goodwin wrote afterward, the small folk cheered, the maesters nodded sagely, and the septons looked at one another and thought on dragons. During their time in Old Town, Jeheris and Alessan slept in Lord Donald's own apartments at the top of the high tower, with all of Old Town spread out below. We have no certain knowledge of what words passed between them and their host, for their discussions took place behind closed doors, without even a maester present. Years later, however, King Jeheris told Septon Bath all that occurred, and Bath set down a summary for the sake of history. The High Towers of Old Town were an ancient family, powerful, wealthy, proud, and large. It had long been their custom for the younger sons, brothers, cousins, and bastards of the house to join the faith, where many had risen high over the centuries. Lord Donald Hightower had a younger brother, two nephews, and six cousins serving the seven in 54 AC. The brother, one nephew, and two cousins wore the cloth of silver of the most devout. It was Lord Donald's desire that one of them become High Septon. King Jeheris did not care which house his High Holiness derived from, or whether he was of low or noble birth. His only concern was that the new High Septon be an exceptionalist. The Targaryen tradition of sibling marriage must never again be questioned by the starry sept. He wanted the new father of the faithful to make exceptionalism an official doctrine of the faith. And though his grace had no objection to Lord Donald's brother, nor the rest of his ilk, none of them had yet spoken on the issue. So, after hours of discussion, an understanding was reached, and sealed with a great feast wherein Lord Donald praised the wisdom of the king, whilst making him acquainted with his brothers, uncles, nephews, nieces, and cousins. Across the city at the starry sept, the most devout convened to choose their new shepherd, with agents of Lord Hightower and the king amongst them, unbeknownst to most. Four ballots were required. Septon Matthias led on the first, as anticipated, but lacked the votes necessary to secure the crystal crown, Thereafter his numbers dwindled on every ballot, whilst other men rose up. On the fourth ballot, the most devout broke tradition, choosing a man who was not one of their own number. The laurel fell to the Septon Alfin, who had crossed the reach a dozen times in his litter on behalf of Jeheris and his queen. The seven kingdoms had no fiercer champion of exceptionalism than Alfin, but he was the oldest of the seven speakers, and legless besides. It seemed likely the stranger would seek him out sooner rather than later. When that befell, his own successor would be a high tower, the king assured Lord Donald, provided his kin aligned themselves firmly with the exceptionalists during Septon Alfin's reign. Thus was the bargain struck, if Septon Bath's account can be believed. Bath himself did not question it, though he rued the corruption that made the most devout so easy to manipulate. 
It would be better if the seven themselves would choose their voice on earth. But when the gods are silent, lords and kings will make themselves heard, he wrote, and added that both Alfin and Lord Donald's brother, who succeeded him, were more worthy of the crystal crown than Septon Matthias could ever have been. No one was more astonished by the selection of Septon Alfin than Septon Alfin himself, who was at Ashford when word reached him. Travelling by litter, it took him more than a fortnight to reach Old Town. Whilst awaiting his coming, Jeheris used the time to call at Bandalen, Three Towers, Uplands, and Honeyhold. He even flew Vermithor to the Arbor, where he sampled some of that island's choicest wines. Queen Alisan remained in Old Town. The Silent Sisters hosted her in their mother house for a day of prayer and contemplation. Another day she spent with the Scepters who cared for the city's sick and destitute. Amongst the novices she met was her niece, Rayla, whom her grace pronounced a learned and devout young woman, though much given to stammers and blushes. For three days she lost herself in the Citadel's great library, emerging only to attend lectures on the Valyrian Dragon Wars, Leechcraft, and the gods of the Summer Isles. Afterward she feasted the assembled archmaesters in their own dining hall, and even presumed to lecture them. If I had not become queen, I might have liked to be a maester, she told the conclave. I read, I write, I think. I am not afraid of ravens, or a bit of blood. There are other high-born girls who feel the same. Why not admit them to your citadel? If they cannot keep up, send them home, the way you send home boys who are not clever enough. If you would give the girls a chance, you might be surprised by how many forge a chain. The archmaesters, loath to gainsay the queen, smiled at her words, and bobbed their heads and assured her grace that they would consider her proposal. Once the new high septon reached Old Town, stood his vigil in the starry sept, and had been duly anointed and consecrated to the seven, forsaking his earthly name and all earthly ties, he blessed King Jeheris and Queen Alisan at a solemn public ceremony. The king's guard and a company of retainers had joined the king and queen as well by that point, so his grace decided to return by way of the Dornish marches and the stormlands. Visits at Horn Hill, Nightsong, and Blackhaven followed. Queen Alisan found the last especially congenial, though his castle was small and modest compared to the great halls of the realm. Lord Dondarrion was a splendid host, and his son Simon played the high harp as well as he jousted and entertained the royal couple by night with sad songs of star-crossed lovers and the fall of kings. So taken with him was the queen that the party lingered longer at Blackhaven than they had intended. They were still there when a raven reached them from Storm's End with dire tidings. Their mother, Queen Elisa, was at the point of death. Once more, Vermithor and Silverwing took to the skies to bring the king and queen to their mother's side as quickly as possible. The remainder of the royal party would follow overland by way of Stonehelm, Crow's Nest, and Griffin's Roost, under the command of Sir Giles Morrigan, Lord Commander of the King's Guard. The great Baratheon stronghold of Storm's End has but a single tower, the massive drum tower raised by Durin Godsgrief during the Age of Heroes, to stand against the wrath of the Storm God. At the top of that tower, beneath only the maester's cell and the rookery, Alisan and Jeheris found their mother asleep in a bed that stank of urine, drenched in sweat and gaunt as a crone, save for her swollen belly. A maester, a midwife, 
and three bedmaids were in attendance on her, each grimmer than the last. Jeheris discovered Lord Rogar seated outside the chamber door, drunk and despairing. When the king demanded to know why he was not with his wife, the Lord of Storm's End growled, The stranger's in that room. I can smell him. A cup of wine tinged with sweet sleep was all that allowed Queen Alyssa even this brief respite, Maester Kyrie explained. Alyssa had been in agony for some hours before. She was screaming so, one of the servants added. Every bit of food we give her comes back up, and she's having awful pain. She was not due, Queen Alyssan said in tears. Not yet. Not for a moon's turn, confirmed the midwife. This is no labor, my lords. Something's tore inside her. Babe's dying or will be dead soon. The mother's too old. She's no strength to push, and the babe's twisted around. It's no good. They'll be gone by first light, both of them. Begging your pardons? Maester Kiri did not disagree. Milk of the poppy would relieve the queen's pain, he said, and he had a strong draught prepared. But it could kill her grace as easily as help her and would almost certainly kill the child inside her. When Jeheris asked what could be done, the maester said, For the queen? Nothing. She is beyond my power to save. There is a chance, a slight chance, that I could save the child. To do so I would need to cut the mother open and remove the child from her womb. The babe might live or not. The woman will die. His words set Queen Alisan to weeping, the king said only, The woman is my mother, and a queen, in a heavy tone. He stepped outside again, pulled Rogar Baratheon to his feet, and dragged him back into the birthing chamber, where he bade the maester repeat what he had just said. She is your wife, King Jeheris reminded Lord Rogar. It is for you to say the words. Lord Rogar, we are told, could not bear to look upon his wife. Nor could he find the words, until the king took him roughly by the arm and shook him. Save my son, Rogar told the maester. Then he wrenched free and fled the room again. Maester Kiri bowed his head and sent for his blades. In many of the accounts that have come down to us, we are told that Queen Alyssa woke from her sleep before the maester could begin. Though racked by pain and violent convulsions, she cried tears of joy to see her children there. When Alisan told her what was about to happen, Elisa gave her assent. Save my babe, she whispered. I will go to see my boys again. The crone will light my way. It is pleasant to believe these were the queen's last words. Sad to say, other accounts tell us that her grace died without waking when Maester Kiri opened her belly. On one point, all agree. Alisan held her mother's hand in her own from start to finish until the babe's first squall filled the room. Lord Rogar did not get the second son that he had prayed for. The child was a girl, born so small and weak that midwife and maester alike did not believe she would survive. She surprised them both, as she would surprise many others in her time. Days later, when he had finally recovered himself enough to consider the matter, Rogar Baratheon named his daughter Jocelyn. First, however, his lordship had to contend with a more contentious arrival. Dawn was breaking, and Queen Alyssa's body was not yet cold, 
when Vermithor raised his head from where he had been coiled sleeping in the yard and gave out with a roar that woke half of Storm's End. He had scented the approach of another dragon. Moments later, Dreamfire descended, silver crests flashing along her back as her pale blue wings beat against the red dawn sky. Arena Targaryen had come to make amends to her mother. She came too late. Queen Alyssa was gone. Though the king told her she did not need to look upon her mother's mortal remains, Reyna insisted, ripping away the bedclothes that covered her to gaze upon the maester's work. After a long time, she turned away to kiss her brother on the cheek and embrace her younger sister. The two queens held each other for a long while, it is said, but when the midwife offered Reyna the newborn babe to hold, she refused. Where is Rogar? she asked. She found him below in his great hall with his young son Boromund in his lap, surrounded by his brothers and his knights. Reyna Targaryen pushed through all of them to stand over him and began to curse him to his face. Her blood is on your hands, she raged at him. Her blood is on your cock. May you die screaming. Rogar Baratheon was outraged by her accusations. What are you saying, woman? This is the will of the gods. The stranger comes for all of us. How could it be my doing? What did I do? You put your cock in her. She gave you one son. That should have been enough. Save my wife, you should have said. But what are wives to men like you? Rayner reached out and grabbed his beard and pulled his face to hers. Hear this, my lord. Do not think to wed again. Take care of the whelps my mother gave you, my half-brother and half-sister. See that they want for nothing. Do that, and I will let you be. If I should hear even a whisper of your taking some other poor maid to wife, I will make another Harren Hall of Storm's End, with you and her inside it. When she had stormed from the hall back to her dragon in the yard, Lord Rogar and his brothers shared a laugh. She is mad, he declared. Does she think to frighten me? Me? I did not fear the wrath of Magor the Cruel. Should I fear hers? Thereafter he drank a cup of wine, summoned his steward to make arrangements for his wife's burial, and sent his brother Sir Garen to invite the king and queen to stay on for a feast in honour of his daughter. Rogar Baratheon never wed again. It was a sadder king who returned to King's Landing from Storm's End. The most devout had given him the high septon he desired. The doctrine of exceptionalism would be a tenet of the faith, and he had reached an accord with the powerful high towers of Old Town. But these victories had turned to ashes in his mouth with the death of his mother. Jaehaerys was not one to brood, however. As he would do so often during his long reign, the king shrugged off his sorrows and plunged himself into the ruling of his realm. Summer had given way to autumn, and leaves were falling all across the Seven Kingdoms. A new vulture king had emerged in the Red Mountains. The sweating sickness had broken out on the Three Sisters, and Tyrosh and Lys were edging toward a war that would almost certainly engulf the stepstones and disrupt trade. All this must needs be dealt with and deal with it he did. Queen Alessane found a different answer. Having lost a mother, she found solace in a daughter. Though not quite a year and a half old, 
Princess Daenerys had been talking, after a fashion, since well before her first name day, and had gone past crawling, lurching, and walking into running. She is in a great hurry, this one, her wet nurse told the queen. The little princess was a happy child, endlessly curious and utterly fearless, a delight to all who knew her. She so enchanted Alessand that for a time her grace even began to eschew council sessions, preferring to spend her days playing with her daughter and reading her the stories that her own mother had once read to her. She is so clever, she will be reading to me before long, she told the king. She is going to be a great queen, I know it. The stranger was not yet done with House Targaryen in that cruel year of 54 AC, however. Across Blackwater Bay on Dragonstone, Rhaena Targaryen had found new griefs awaiting her when she returned from Storm's End. Far from being a joy and a comfort to her, as Daenerys was to Alisan, her own daughter Arya had become a terror, a willful wild child who defied her scepter, her mother and her maesters alike, abused her servants, absented herself from prayers, lessons, and meals without leave, and addressed the men and women of Rayner's court with such charming names as Sir Stupid, Lord Pigface, and Lady Farts a lot. Her grace's husband, Andrew Farman, though less vocal and openly defiant, was no less angry. When word first reached Dragonstone that Queen Alyssa was failing, Andrew had announced that he would accompany his wife to Storm's End. As her husband, he said, his place was at Rayner's side, to give her comfort. The queen had refused him, however, and not gently. A loud argument had preceded her departure, and her grace was heard to say, The wrong farman ran away. Her marriage, never passionate, had become a mummer's farce by 54 AC, and not an entertaining one, Lady Alain Royce observed. Andrew Farman was no longer the lad that Rayner had married five years earlier on Fair Isle when he was ten and seven. The comely stripling had become puffy-faced, round-shouldered, and fleshy. Never well regarded by other men, he had found himself forgotten and ignored by their lordly hosts during Rayner's wanderings in the West. Dragonstone proved to be no better. His wife was still a queen, but no one mistook Andrew for a king, or even a lord consort. Though he sat at Queen Rayner's side during meals, he did not share her bed. That honour went to her friends and favourites. His own bedchamber was in an altogether different tower from hers. The gossips at court said the Queen told him that it was better that they slept apart, so he need not be disturbed if he should find some pretty maid to warm his bed. There is no indication that he ever did. His days were as empty as his nights. Though he had been born upon an island and now lived upon another, Andrew did not sail or swim or fish. A failed squire, he had no skill with sword, nor axe, nor spear, so when the men of the castle garrison trained each morning in the yard, he kept to his bed. Thinking that he might be of a bookish disposition, Maester Culliper tried to interest him in the treasures of Dragonstone's library, the ponderous tomes and old Valyrian scrolls that had fascinated King Jaehaerys only to discover that the Queen's husband could not read. Andrew rode passably well, and from time to time would have a horse saddled so he might trot about the yard. But he never passed beyond the gates to explore the Dragonmont's rocky paths or the far side of the island, nor even the fishing village and docks beneath the castle. He drinks a deal, 
Maester Caliper wrote to the Citadel, and has been known to spend entire days in the chamber of the painted table, moving painted wooden soldiers about the map. Queen Rayner's companions are wont to say he is planning his conquest of Westeros. They do not mock him to his face for her sake, but they titter at him behind his back. The knights and men-at-arms pay him no mind whatsoever, and the servants obey him, or not, as they please, with no fear of his displeasure. The children are the cruelest, as children often are, and none half so cruel as the Princess Aria. She once emptied a chamber-pot upon his head, not for anything he did, but because she was wroth with her mother. Andrew Farman's discontent on Dragonstone only grew worse after his sister's departure. Lady Alyssa had been his closest friend, mayhaps his only friend, Culliper observed, and despite his tearful denials, Arena found it hard to accept that he had played no role in the matter of her dragon eggs. When the Queen dismissed Sir Merrill Bullock, Andrew had asked her to appoint him commander of the castle garrison in Bullock's place. Her grace had been breaking her fast with four of her ladies-in-waiting at the time. The women burst into laughter at his request, and after a moment the Queen had laughed as well. When Rayner flew to King's Landing to inform King Jeheris of the theft, Andrew had offered to accompany her. His wife refused him scornfully. What would that serve? What could you possibly do but fall off the dragon? Queen Rayner's denial of his wish to go with her to Storm's End was but the latest and the last in a long string of humiliations for Andrew Farman. By the time Rayner returned from her mother's deathbed, he was well past any desire to comfort her. Sullen and cold, he sat silent at meals and avoided the Queen's company elsewise. If Rayner Targaryen was troubled by his sulks, she gave little sign of it. She found consolation in her ladies instead, in old friends like Samantha Stokeworth and Alain Royce, and newer companions like her cousin Liana Valerian, Lord Staunton's pretty daughter Casella, and young Septa Mariam. Whatever peace they helped her find proved short-lived. Autumn had come to Dragonstone, as to the rest of Westeros, and with it came cold winds from the north and storms from the south raging up the narrow sea. A darkness settled over the ancient fortress, a gloomy place even in summer. Even the dragons seemed to feel the damp. And as the year waned, the sickness came to Dragonstone. It was not the sweating sickness, nor the shaking sickness, nor grayscale, Maester Culliper pronounced. The first sign was a bloody stool followed by a terrible cramping in the gut. There were a number of diseases that could be the cause, he told the Queen. Which of those might be to blame he never determined, for Culliper himself was the first to die, less than two days after he began to feel ill. Maester.